Good evening. Welcome, everyone. We are so excited that you have joined us this evening for our 2017 annual Stendhal Symposium. I am Carlene Griffith-Seku, the academic chair and curator of this 10th year of the Stendhal Symposium, and I will be your MC this evening. On behalf of the entire Harvard Divinity School Student Association, I extend again a warm welcome to each and every one of you. I especially extend a welcome to our admitted student guests who have been visiting with us for the open house all day today. I also extend a warm welcome to members of our broader community and all among us from HDS staff, students, faculty, and administration. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the Office of Student Life, Dean Welsky, Dean Gauchel, and Stephanie Caponera for your support. We're deeply grateful for Professors Nasrallah and Professor Wes, who have graciously agreed to serve as our opening speaker and faculty responder, respectively. Lastly, but not by any means the least, won't you join me in extending a hearty congratulations to our four student colleagues, recipients of this year's Stendhal Awards, Deborah Frimpong, Siobhan Kelly, James Ramsey, I'll say it again, Siobhan Kelly and Denson. And Denson Staples. We look forward. We look forward to hearing each of your presentations. So this evening our program consists of our opening speaker, Dr. Laura Nasrallah. Um, and following, we will hear from each student whom I will introduce as they present. Then we will hear from our faculty responder, Dr. Cornell West. And finally, we'll be delighted to facilitate questions and discussion from you, our esteemed audience. And in the back, we will continue our light fare of wine and dessert. By way of a few introductory remarks, Christa Stendhal was the Andrew Mellon Professor of Divinity Emeritus and the Dean of Faculty at Harvard Divinity School from 1968 to 1979. He later returned to be the first chaplain of Harvard Divinity School in the late 1980s. In 2008, however, a student initiative ensued to highlight students' academic work and to offer scholarly experience and acknowledge their work by way of presenting papers to a broad community of peers, scholars, professors, and community members. During this time, HDS lost our dear member of our community, Christopher Stendhal. This symposium was instituted in Dean Stendhal's honor to continue to hold before us his legacy of interfaith dialogue, scholarly curiosity, faithful humility, and radical inclusion. I will pause here 
to say again this year, we remember Britta Stendhal, Christa Stendhal's wife and partner, who passed away in February of 2016. Britta faithfully attended this symposium each year. We honor her life, her work, and memory, and we take this opportunity to remember and lift up the Stendhal family on this occasion. Our process, our process was one in which students were selected through an open call for papers. All eligible papers were read and ranked by peer students and faculty readers who made up the Stendhal committee. This process yielded four outstanding papers ranked as best among the pool given to each reader. That not only reflected Stendhal's legacy, but each paper also elucidated intellectual and creative imagination that extends the Stendhal legacy for such a time as this. These are generous, risk-taking, bold offerings for bridging the divides within plurality in which it is easy to obscure our mute or mute the other. The goal is not ultimate agreement, but depth, understanding, and cultivation of embodied justice and love. Stendhal himself implored us to find beauty in the other so as to hold holy envy. As well, he noted, guard fiercely the freedom of every person to pray and speak in ways that are meaningful to him or her or them, lest the specter of pluralism mute authentic expressions of devotion. Without further delay, I present to you Dr. Laura Nasrallah. Professor Nasrallah is professor of New Testament and early Christianity and author of An Ecstasy and Folly, Prophecy and Authority in Early Christianity. And she also authored Early Christian Responses to Roman Art and Architecture, the Second Century Church Amid Spaces of Empire. She is also co-editor of two volumes, Professor Nasrallah. I want to thank the Student Association and especially Carlene, who seems to have multiple bodies and who does more before 5 a.m. than most of us do in several weeks. I'm really grateful for the effort putting this together. And it's wonderful to see you all, faces I know, faces I don't know, welcome if you are a prospective student. It's an honor to say some words at the start of the Christer Stendhal Conference this year, and, and, and it would be an honor to him. It would be pleasing to him, I think, that engaged scholarship continues to go on in his name. Resisting hegemonies, embracing multiplicity in a world of difference. What a title. Three phrases, each of which could use some exegesis. Resisting hegemonies, yes. Embracing multiplicity, yes. 
A world of difference, yes. I could just sit down and hear what the students will say and what Cornell West will respond. But amid these three powerful phrases and my amen and amen, I want to start our evening together by speaking about the third phrase, a world of difference. And I'll do that in three movements, talking about Christer Stendhal, second talking about the resurrection a bit, and third talking about the work of our students and the work of Harvard Divinity School. I want to speak about this third phrase, a world of difference, in relation to the namesake, first of this symposium, in relation to the legacy of Christer Stendhal, Beatae Memoriae of Blessed Memory. Christer came to Harvard in 1954 to teach, was dean from March 68 to July of 79, I believe, returned to his post as professor of New Testament after that, and then went on to be Bishop of Stockholm, and then later the first Myra and Robert Kraft and Jacob Hyatt distinguished professor of Christian studies at Brandeis, and then the inaugural chaplain at HDS. Christer died in 2008, soon after my second child was born. I visited him in the hospital, heavy with pregnancy, grateful to be near him. Two months later, he was again in the hospital for the last time. And I longed to go and visit, but I also wanted to keep a respectful distance because the family seemed overwhelmed with all those who wanted to help. A day after Christer's death, I received a handwritten note in the mail from his wife, Britta, inviting me to come to the hospital to read scripture at Christer's bedside. Why this is so important to me, I'm not sure. It happened in the midst of a whirl of my own self-centered activities, the birth of my daughter, my father's rapid decline from cancer, the approaching horizon of my tenure review. Perhaps it was the latter that made me long to be with a man whom Professor Harvey Cox has said encouraged Harvey when he was a junior scholar about to go on sabbatical with plans of books to write and articles to produce, Christer encouraged Harvey to think about sabbatical not as a time to publish, but as a time of rest, going back to its Sabbath etymology. Surely no dean since has done that. <laughs> I was not one of Christer's students, but I teach his work and try to explain its revolutionary legacy, and I was honored to know him when I returned to Harvard to teach. Welcome to the club, he said, as he took me out to lunch at the Harvard Faculty Club and then gently probed me on my opinion about Paul as resistor towards the Roman Empire. What about Romans 13? He said slowly, a passage that begins, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I panicked. I nearly sputtered with a mouthful of my fish soup, his favorite. And at, least, uh, and at least sputtered intellectually as he adduced Paul's words to support his contention, now mine too, that Paul cannot easily or simply be seen as a hero of anti-imperial resistance. But Christer's work was not apolitical. It was deeply engaged ethically and theologically, informed by his life as an ordained Lutheran minister, deeply lived out in his time as professor and then dean here. He supported a world of difference not only in his deeply felt identity as a sojourner and alien between Sweden and the United States, but also in his politics. Here, he was nicknamed Sister Christer for his support of the rare female students in his day. Alongside his wife, Britta, who herself had two theological degrees and was a writer of books and a fellow of the Bunting Institute, now the Radcliffe, Christer supported the ordination of women, first in the Swedish Lutheran tradition and then more generally at a time when the move was controversial. 
His work was not apolitical, but deeply engaged and deeply fulfilled after his deanship um, in his life as bishop in Stockholm, Sweden in his natal land, natal land, and then in his work at Brandeis and with the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, roles in which he lived out his deep engagement in Jewish-Christian dialogue. I've so far indulged myself a little sentimentally. I don't know why I felt such a shy love for Christer and why I love to remember him. But I'm sure that talking about him is appropriate for this conference, this topic, this urgent world of sexism and homophobia, of racism, of anti-blackness, of lingering colonialisms, of police brutality, of disregard for the stranger and the immigrant. We can bring forward some of his thought engaged as it was at the intersection of the political and religious, engaged as he was in impassioned and dignified religious leadership in such a turbulent time in US politics and education. We can bring his thought forward into the present. He lived in a world of difference moving from Sweden to the US, engaged in his deanship as the movements for women's rights, civil rights, the call of Dr. King to march, the anti-Vietnam War efforts swelled in the US and at Harvard. I don't think students went to classes very often then. In the midst of a school that was teaching how to incorporate other religious traditions, even if it was still in a very Christian model, Christer coined the phrase, as you heard from Carlene, holy envy, as a way to recognize the good in another religion without trying to reduce it or appropriate it immediately for one's own. He wasn't always right, but in the end he was wise. Christer spoke to worlds of difference in his time. I was once asked by someone who had looked at my bibliography, wrote Christer, why I had been so preoccupied with two topics, Jews and women. I think in retrospect that the answer is not hard to find. The Christian scriptures contain stuff that has proven calamitous to both Jews and women. Stendhal proposed, and I quote again, a hermeneutic suited for the public health task of theology, a kind of academic blood glucose test by which one could discern if things were going in the wrong direction, if one's biblical interpretation was hazardous to another's health or to yours, deleterious or uplifting of the common good. Christer knew that the study of religion could inoculate people against the bad use of religion or scriptural interpretation. And his words again, I would guess that the last racists in this country, if there ever be an end to such, will be the ones with Bibles in hand. There never has been an evil cause in the world that has not become more evil if it has been possible to argue it on biblical grounds. Scholarship in the study of religion as a solution to a public health crisis. Our work here as epidemiologists. I like that. God knows we're having a public health crisis on multiple levels this year, and we can't blame it all on biblical interpretation. What then is Stendhal's legacy of a world of difference? Let me explain this in Christer's words. The longer I have lived, he wrote, the more I have come to like plurals. I have grown increasingly suspicious of singulars. I have come to question the incessant theological urge towards oneness. Sorry, waiting to see if we can get the feedback down. Um, the uh, biblical scholar that he was, Christer emphasizes the Bible, which while it sounds singular in English, comes from the Greek tavivlia, the books. He points to his love of the Trinity, 
which he declares, quote, a most daring attempt at not sacrificing richness and diversity on the altars of theoretical monisms of various kinds. He embraced multiplicity. In a piece entitled Why I Love the Bible, Christer argues about the importance of the fact that the Christian Testament has not one gospel that tells a singular story of Jesus. This was a possibility that second century Christians tried out. But four gospels. Some scholars still consider the differences packed into the Christian Testament a liability and an embarrassment. Whole careers have been founded in my subfield on the attempt to resolve differences between these gospels to make one whole and straight story of Jesus. Christer writes instead, and so the four gospels are wonderful lessons in the fact that God, has, that God is not pedantic when it comes to telling the story. Rather, God wants it told a little different to catch as many aspects as possible. As I like to say, he writes, when you have four portraits of somebody you love very much, you look at one portrait at a time. And actually where there are differences, that's usually where the artist has something important to say. In this and elsewhere, Christer spoke from his own location as a Christian, as a minister, and as a biblical scholar, from his own sight of difference about the dangers of thinking universalism, the arrogance, the hubris, the loss of particularity. This loss isn't only found in collapsing the Jesuses of the Gospels into one Jesus, it's also found in the arrogant notion, he writes, that Christianity is a universal religion, a harbinger of progress and apex of history. Christer writes, Jesus said you are the salt of the earth, but who wants the world to become a salt mine? In other words, don't take all the particular flavors of the world and oversalt them into the oblivion of a universal Christianity. Christer goes on, the Jews have never thought that God's hottest dream was that everybody become a Jew. They rather thought they were called upon to be faithful and that God somehow needed that people in the total cosmos. What a humility, but we called it tribalism. I know that my comments are centered on Christian texts and Christian tradition in a school that decenters Christianity. I use Christianity because it's my particular difference as a person of faith and practice because it is the area of my scholarship as a historian of early Christianity and because it was Christer's legacy. And also because some of its imaginaries have potential uses for utopian thought of all stripes, whether you're religious or atheist, whether you're a nun or a nun. I am a scholar of early Christianity. So in thinking about the subtitle for tonight, embracing multiplicity in a world of difference, I began to think about the resurrection. It's also kind of that time of year. Early Christians had all sorts of fights about the resurrection. In these fights, they were not really so much interested in Jesus and his resurrection. They were interested in their own resurrections. Do we come back with teeth? Do we come back with genitalia? In the days before YouTube, this was a hot topic in early Christianity. I don't want you to believe in the resurrection. I don't want to suggest that this notion that we find in early Christian texts is the answer to the problems of all religions or to the concerns of the agnostic. But I want to share a thought experiment from antiquity because it's a theological imaginary that allows a glimpse at a world of differences that's far more complex than we usually imagine. It comes from a world different from our own and a time different from our own, the ancient Mediterranean, including Jews. So I want to briefly mention Julia Watts Belser's work, which is at the intersection of disability studies and rabbinics. From her, we learn that some Talmudic texts also debate the resurrection. These teachers are worried about the question, what happens to the body at resurrection? What happens in particular to the disabled body? 
In her analysis of Genesis Rabbah, Belser writes, yet even as Genesis Rabbah emphasizes the ultimate healing of the resurrected body, it preserves a place for corporeal difference in the afterlife. The newly resurrected body comes forth fully enfleshed, living again into its corporeal particularity. Disability conserves personal identity. It allows the self to be recognized and known. She continues, disability condenses and expresses the history of a self. The resurrected disabled body will be eventually perfected according to Genesis Rabbah, but at its first rising, it's marked by difference so that it may be recognized and known to those who loved the particularities of the body and its marked flesh. The body that returns is marked so it can be recognized. The body happens in community, is loved in its particularity and difference. That's what seems to happen in the Gospel of John too with the body of the resurrected Jesus still marked by the torture of the cross, that lynching tree of first century Judea. The disciple Mary had, of course, already told the disciples the good news of the resurrection. I've seen the Lord, but the other disciples are encircled by the shame and fear as associates of a theopolitical resistor who had been crushed by Roman imperial hegemony. Then suddenly Jesus came and stood among them, says the Gospel of John, and said, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus' resurrected body is recognized by its marks. Eight days later, Jesus appears to the doubting disciple Thomas, who had missed the first appearance. Then he said to Thomas, writes the Gospel of John, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Touch my side, see my hands and feet. These marks of torture, these marks of injustice allow for recognition. They do not glorify or justify suffering, but their particularity allows Jesus to be recognized. Jesus, a low status man from an occupied area of the empire. We've had many bodies to mourn lately, our personal losses, of course, but also our national ones stained by structural injustice, by racism, by sexism, by homophobia. Freddie Gray, those lo lost at the Pulse nightclub, Sandra Bland, our international losses, those who na whose names we don't know. It's hard to say their names. There are so many. And if the wounds of injustice are healed eventually in the resurrection, they do remain for a while to allow for the recognition this is what I want to say, that even if you don't think there's a resurrection of a body, you may still long for the particular differences of a particular body. The color of skin, the smell of hair, the softness of hands, the gesture, the gait. I miss the strange sound of my father's laugh and the pattern of his wavy hair. I miss the owlishness of Christer's glance, the stiffness of his neck from years of disease that gave him a dignified, curious, quizzical air. Weigh the precious particularity, mark the difference, and recognize it. I don't know how or if there is a resurrection of the flesh, a resurrection of the body, but I do know that the vibrant particularities of the flesh are what we love in each other, the world of difference between us. But I've gone on too long, Christer wrote. One of the best rules for reading scriptures is the very same as for preaching. It should be light, it should be quick, and it should be tender. So too for the teacher or speaker. But I want to conclude with some thoughts and to draw in the student papers as well. When I was growing up, a book much valued in the conservative Christian communities from which I come was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. There is the urgent 
There are things happening that we need to fix, places where we need to put our bodies and our academic labor in the way of injustice. But Stendhal was in this for the long haul. He changed and evolved over time. The papers we hear today are the long haul. They're careful, they're detailed, they're thoughtful academic work in the service of transforming the world. We should be preparing ourselves for this long haul, caring for ourselves and our communities for the long haul, and knowing that the preparations we use today are foundational. We will change, we will learn, and we need to make time for that. It's the passionate love and study that rouses us to resist structures that break and destroy that precious particular. The work of the scholar is melancholy, but with a purpose. And I want to quote from Joseph Winter's Hope Draped in Black Race Melancholy in the Agony of Progress. Melancholy names one way, writes Winters, that we are undone by sufferings and strugglings of others, one way that the dismembered haunt and agitate our narratives, memories, and frameworks of meaning. A less violent and cruel world depends in large part on our capacity to be figuratively wounded and opened by the dissonant qualities and blue notes of life's many soundtracks. Our work here at HDS is to be curious enough about difference that we are undone by history, that we feel the melancholy, that we see the tragicomic to take over Cornell West's language, that we know the blues, that we keep in mind the worlds of difference and point out ways of resistance. Denson Staples will help us to, to address how the Quran calls the human in all her particularities to intimate fellowship with the divine, the name of God pulsing in the blood, and thus the Quran's orientation is something beyond a simple universalism. Debbie will ask us to engage with two novels in order to think about their characters, not just as literary constructions who suffer and thrive under colonialisms, but as, and here I quote her, humans who lived as we might and who with spirit and desire can exceed the objectifying force of colonialism, to rephrase Fanon. Siobhan Kelly will ask us to consider both the transformative power and the dangers of the figures of the Messiah and of messianic impulses. How can we resist hegemonic uses of messianism in part by focusing on the centrality of bodies and their pleasures, to cite from the paper. James Ramsey will bring us to music to question how our very notions of linear and teleological history have deformed us, rendered us incapable of seeing alternative times and histories, and instead declaring that some are mired in a notion of the past that does not cohere with modernist progress. He asks us to consider how certain ideas of spatialized time have rendered us closed, bound by prejudices that do not allow the blossoming of the theological imagination. These papers and our symposium tonight remind us that what we do here at HDS is to learn about worlds of difference in order to prepare ourselves for worlds of difference in the future. What do we want? Whom do we want to become? What kinds of minds and bodies and fleshes and glories are we refining? The practices of academic scholarship lead us to ethical formation, to an activism in and out of the classroom. Citation is recognition of debt to the other. Debate in the classroom is practice at respecting and struggling honorably with others by learning foreign languages, by carefully describing objects, by spending time with difficult texts from the Theragata to the Talmud to Judith Butler. We prepare ourselves again and again to listen, to pay attention, to notice difference. We're practicing here. We're engaging. We're preparing ourselves and each other as the studied resistor, the activist, the scholar. These practices prepare us to love ourselves and our communities enough that we are careful for damage and violence, careful not to be seduced by claims of authority or authenticity or canonicity that don't take seriously our vital matter, our different bodies, our precious flesh, 
the world of differences that we make. Professor Nasrallah asked earlier or stated that she wasn't sure how this would fit. And to you, I say perfectly, thank you so much for setting that stage now for us to engage our wonderful students in their work. If you all may come to the table, as I call, as I call you now, you can each come up. Denson, Staples will be the first student to present, followed by Siobhan Kelly will follow Denson, James Ramsey, and Deborah Frempong. Dr. West, if you may join uh, at the end of the table. Um. Our first presenter, Denson Staples. Denson Staples is a second year Master of Divinity student studying Islam, Christianity, and the use of scriptural sources for socio-political ends, particularly to make ethical and theological claims about sex, gender, and sexuality. He has studied practices of lived theology in Spain, Italy, Turkey, Egypt, and Morocco. Prior to his studies at the Divinity School, he worked for the U.S. Institute for Peace to facilitate conflict transformation and peace-building trainings for U.S.-based US -based youth civil society leaders across the Middle East, North Africa, and the United Nations peacekeepers. The paper he is sharing is entitled, The Remembrance of God, Particularity, Universality, and divine relations in the Quran. Denson Staples. Thank you so much, Carlene, for that introduction, and thank you to all of you for being here tonight, especially our admitted students. Welcome to what may be, for the first time, uh, a visit to Harvard Divinity School. I wanted to tell you a little bit about this paper, what um, led to its production tonight before I hop into it. This paper, The Remembrance of God, Particularity, Universality, and Divine Human Relations in the Quran, is a product of a course I took with Professor William Graham called Approaching the Quran a year ago. It began as my final paper for the course, and thanks to Professor Graham's encouragement, I've continued working on it. And without that encouragement, I'm really not sure where it would be today, probably still sitting on canvas where I submitted it. <laughs> In addition to that gratitude for Professor Graham, I would be absolutely remiss not to also thank Mohsen Gudarzi. Some of you may know Mohsen. He's a doctoral student in Islamic studies here at Harvard and served as the teaching fellow for Approaching the Quran. 
The time and attention and detail and care that most important into thinking about this paper with me was exceptional. I'm still um, overwhelmed with gratitude for it to this day and made me a better thinker not only with respect to tonight's topic but how to craft arguments and the art of argumentation in and of itself. I have to say, especially for incoming students, that so much of my learning at the Divinity School has happened alongside teaching fellows who care. So thank you to Mosin and every last one of our doctoral students who honor the task of teaching and instruction and, in my experience, ennoble the process and experience of education here at the Divinity School. So I'll begin by uh, reading, by way of introduction, the abstract for the paper, and then I'll have to zoom into one portion of the paper rather than read all of it for the sake of time. The Quran contains verses suggesting it is a revelation for a particular religious community, even as others emphasize its role as a guidance for all of humanity. While the Quran is widely held to be a universal revelation for all of humanity for certain Muslims and scholars of Islam, a comprehensive framework that accounts for both the particularistic and universalistic verses has yet to be fully propounded. Laying a foundation towards such a framework, not providing a full framework by any means, this paper accounts for this dual orientation, while also reinforcing a methodological approach to the Quranic message that underscores the indivisibility of verse complexes. You'll see as I turn to read the paper that I'm prioritizing the Quranic text and what it discloses about itself, not all that we have said about it. I'm interested in the Quran's self-conception as made accessible through the content of the message or revelation. Some questions that I hope will be alive for you at the end of the reading are fall into two camps, I think. One, how do we speak about writings that are esteemed as a preserved word of God? Particularly when these writings were historically, primarily encountered and experienced through audition as recitations rather than written records of the word. Such is the case with the Quran, and still today the primary means of experiencing it for vast swaths of people the world over is through public recitation. In the context of this paper, encountering the Quran in a way that preserves the interrelations of one verse to those around it, and then whole subsets of verses to other passages, excuse me, leads to me to talk about indivisible verse complexes. This is an attempt to find language that conveys the intimate relationship between the verses and the ways they bear upon, impinge upon, and rely upon one another in ways that I think are not unlike human relationships or, as you'll hear me read shortly, like the divine human relationship. Is our way of conceiving of this relationship better enabled by the medium of our encounter with the revelation? To what extent does a private reading of the Quran versus a public recitation of it or other ways of experiencing it altogether ultimately shape our way of thinking about the revelation and listening for its conception of itself and intuiting the ways in which verses and surahs or chapters inform one another. How is our sensibility about the revelation changed by the method of our encounter with it? And how do we then change it based on how we conceive of and interpret it rooted in that sensibility? A second item of questions uh, pertains to the language of universality itself. There's a long history of claims to universality made about scriptural texts, often by those for whom the texts are sacred. But to be forthright, I do wonder 
how well the language of universality comports with these texts. I'm not fully convinced we've yet furnished the, lang the language that best conveys the Quran's self-understanding. And there may be a way in which discursive deployments of universal and universalism and universality actually occlude our understanding of these texts. I think this question seems of paramount importance given the cultural clout afforded pluralism, political pluralism, religious pluralism, and otherwise in the contemporary moment. How does a pluralistic impulse account for or avoid having to account for multiple claims to universal significance? importance and applicability to human life of various divine revelations. How might we revise our notions of pluralism or our notions of universality to put these two conceptual structures into conversation with one another? Lastly, I just wanted to say a little bit about the connection to Christopher Stendhal um, for my particular paper. I'll be brief. I, the strongest sense of connection I have with Stendhal is actually through that essay that Professor Nasrallah talked to us about why I love the Bible. It was, in full disclosure, in her introduction to New Testament class when I first encountered the essay. Um, but in it, the Bible emerges as a story, a text that tells a story about a particular people, and, Christer, and Stendhal talks about it as a story about a particular people and a particular place that can seem sometimes so far removed from today, and yet also be read as speaking intimately to our circumstances or times or even to us as individuals. It is not only this attention to the experience of encountering what is considered divine revelation that finds resonance with the paper I'm presenting tonight, but also the pull between creating meaning out of the particularities of the context in which the revelation was made known and creating meaning out of our decision to let the revelation speak to circumstances that are ostensibly far beyond and different from that context. So I'll share with you a few of the pages from the paper. At the outset, I'll say before the portion I'm about to read, I talk about um, two ideas. First, I take up the argument for the Quran's particularity, certain verses that seem to connote that it's for a particular place and time and people. Some verses speak about uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, being an Arab and this being particular of particular importance or the revelation being given in Arabic and this being of particular importance for certain communities. And so holding those particularistic orientations alongside more universal ones is what I will turn to in the second part of the paper that you're about to hear. Important to that recognition is that the verses connoting this particularity are often ensconced within much broader passages about the universality of the Quran and attending to both of these impulses is what I think helps us best understand the text on its own grounds. Remembrance of God, the role of revelation in the human experience. A reading from the Divine Quran. And we have sent down the reminder unto thee that thou mayest clarify for mankind that which has been sent down unto them, that haply they may reflect. The notion that the Quran does not circumscribe the divine by using language for God as a being of or for a particular prophet or people has led to Islamic universalism, the idea that the Quran is universal in its ideals. Leah Kinberg similarly showcases the ways in which a number of Muslim thinkers anchor the case for what she calls Islam as a universal faith upon Surah 4913. 
Surah 49 is unexceptional in this sense. Indeed, a number of ayat or verses, including many that directly address the recitation's community of reception, employ language that can be used to undergird arguments for the Quran's universal relevance. However, the Quran tends to employ the rather particular address, O ye who believe, more frequently than the phrase, O people. And even the latter, O people, in fact, can be interpreted as, interpreted as referring to a very specific social group rather than, than humanity as a whole. Excuse me. Nevertheless, I am only partially interested in the precise tally of universalistic versus particularistic vocative phrases and will therefore focus principally on the broader sense of audience created by the Quran and its terminology, particularly ayat that disclose some sense of the Quranic self-conception. Verses pertaining to the Prophet Muhammad's peace be upon him role as a messenger of God similarly suggest a universal element to that role. Among other ayat describing the Prophet's office, one says, and we sent thee not, save as a mercy unto the worlds. In this way, the Quran describes the Prophet as a mercy not only for his followers, but unto the world, which might be understood as encompassing all people. Indeed, al-lamun may be translated as worlds, but can also mean beings in the world. With this translation, the verse I just read would then be rendered, and we sent thee not, save as a mercy unto the beings of the world. As a human messenger of the divine revelation, then, Muhammad, peace be upon him, is sent as a mercy for all people. And if the messenger is described as having universal significance for humanity, we must also consider the extent to which the message itself must be equally universal in significance for humanity. Particularly given the Prophet Muhammad's, peace be upon him, importance within Islam precisely because of his role as a messenger of God, it should be expected that the nature of his role as messenger is inextricably linked to the nature of the message. If he is a mercy unto the world, to what extent can that role as a universal mercy for humanity be independent of the revelation he brought to humanity? In other words, the prophet can be understood as a mercy for the world because the message he brought is, in some way and to some extent, a revelation unto the world, not solely a message for one part of humanity. Elsewhere in the Quran, the revelation underscores what might be called the generic nature of the recipients of the revelation. In other words, what is exceptional for the Quran is the revelation, not the community that receives it. To this end, it says, and if you turn away, God will cause a people other than you to take your place, and they will not be the likes of you. As the study Quran notes with respect to this verse, God will replace some with others more worthy of his religion, meaning either another people who already exist or a whole new people whom he will create. It is clear that the Quran does not conceive of the revelation as being specific to or reserved solely for those to whom it was revealed. Rather, others could not only be more worthy to receive it, but also potentially fulfill it to a greater extent. Beyond verses addressed to a universal audience, those noting Muhammad's universal significance for humanity and the unexceptional nature of the community to which the Quran was revealed, other verses underscore the Quran's broad and broader self-understanding of its role in human life. For instance, the Quran records that the month of Ramadan is that wherein the Quran was sent down as guidance to humankind, as clear proofs of guidance, and as a criterion. Elsewhere, it describes itself in language similar to that of Muhammad, peace be upon him, prophetic office, as when it says, yet it is not but a reminder for the worlds. 
and say, I ask not of you any reward for it, nor am I among the pretenders. It is not but a reminder for the world. The Quran, it would seem, understands itself as serving as a reminder for the world rather than one particular community. A universal role for the Quran with respect to humanity is further emphasized by Muhammad's, peace be upon him, relationship to it, as when it advises him to say, God is witness between you and me, and this Quran has been revealed unto me that thereby I may warn you and whomsoever it may reach. Verses such as this reveal that the Quran understood part of Muhammad's prophetic duty to entail warning. And importantly, this duty to warn applied not only to those to whom the Quran was immediately, immediately revealed, but whomsoever it may reach, a turn of phrase that, at the least, avoids emphasizing a particular community, and at the most, is decidedly universalistic. Taken together, it is clear that this, from this small subset of verses, which are representative of many others like them found throughout the Revelation, that the Quran understands itself to be a guidance to humankind, a mercy and a reminder for the worlds, and a warning for whomsoever the revelation reaches. The Quran is unequivocal about its role within human life, to guide, remind, and warn a broad swath of creation, or the worlds, if not humankind as a whole. Indeed, as a guidance, reminder, and warning, the Quran combats what it identifies as a universal human trait, the tendency to forget. Specifically, the Quran serves to counteract human forgetfulness of the divine. Indeed, the Quran does not propound a doctrine of the original or essential sinfulness of humanity, but rather acknowledges that human beings are not born sinners, but they are forgetful. A forgetfulness that can be countered only by reminder, dhikr, which the Quran calls itself a reminder. When the tendency to forget is understood as a universal phenomenon among humankind, then the necessity for a reminder with universal applicability becomes clear such that parts of the Quran can speak most directly to every human being, regardless of religious confession or cultural background. Ultimately, the Quran shares this mnemonic function with all divine interventions in human life through revelation, since, quote, to remind people of God is considered a primary function of all revelation, end quote. From the divine perspective, as disclosed through the Quran, we have sent down the reminder, this is in the voice of God, we have sent down the reminder unto thee that thou mayest clarify for humankind that which has been sent down unto them, that happily they may reflect. Their Quran serves in this light as a clarification for all of humankind and a, a prompt for greater reflection. Indeed, this verse can be understood to mean that God wishes all human beings to ponder and consider carefully the scriptures and prophetic messages sent to them so that they might come to know the truth a view contrary to the one that argues that God does not necessarily wish for all to be guided. Like all revelations, the Quran recalls to the forgetful human mind the many signs of God. As such, it, function, it serves a function for all of humanity, since forgetfulness is not particular to one community. As Fazl al-Rahman notes, quote, Muhammad came to warn his people and through them others, for although a messenger immediately addresses his people, once delivered his message becomes universal. The importance of acknowledging the universal orientation of the Quran is quite clear if we consider the Quran's view of communities that did not respect the, the universal essence of their own divine revelations. For example, Rahman argues that, quote, the Quran makes particular targets, I don't know if I would use that word, but he says targets of Jews and Christians for their exclusivist claims, end quote, to divine favor and guidance and for laying proprietary claims to God. 
Precisely because God and the various divine revelations transcend any particular community, Rahman asserts that no individual or community in the world can at any time appropriate truth. On divine unity, human submission, and revelatory universality. We have seen that the Quran understands itself to be part of a generalizable pattern of divine intervention in human life through revelation, conceives of both itself and the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as addressing all of humanity, and serves as a remembrance of God that can counter the universal human tendency to forget the divine. Thus, the Quran includes a wealth of ayat that convey a sense of its universal relevance for all human life. If the Quran has even one passage suggesting its universality, then one question that arises is what precisely is universal about it? Along with serving as a reminder that combats human forgetfulness, what else might be universal about the Quran, and why might it address humanity as a whole rather than one particular community? Questions such as these reorient our attention to some of the foundational claims of the Quran. There is but one God, and humanity should strive to remember and submit to that one God. These fundamental Quranic truths undergird and unify its particular and universal orientations. Even beyond the ostensible particularities of various revelations, so this line of thinking goes, the central message of the Quranic revelation may be, to an extent, the same as that of other revelations. More to the point, the Quran may be understood as starting, stating more explicitly and clearly a reality that is present in other divine revelations. It is for this very reason that, although according to the Quran, prophets have been sent at different times to all human collectivities with revelations in different tongues, their message was one. La ilaha illallah, there is, God, there is no God but God. Thus the history of humanity is a history of forgetting and being reminded again and again of this eternal truth. Each divine revelation to various communities throughout history can thus be seen as a continuation of a single stream of revelation beginning with Adam and ending with the prophet Muhammad. Such that while the forms of the message change, the content remains the same. Within this paradigm, each revelation is a formal manifestation of an eternal formless truth, a truth that transcends the specifics of any one revelatory event. If each particular revelation is really another instantiation of an unchanging eternal truth, we must return to consider afresh the most particular aspects of each revelation, the laws laid down therein. Namely, how can divinely ordained laws that differ from community to community actually lead to the same ultimate truth? Indeed, God has not, quote, God has not revealed one law, but many laws, and to each law corresponds a particular path that is based on the performance of, that, of rites particular to that form of worship. The fundamental precepts of the Quran offer recourse. Insofar as the observation of a divinely mandated law serves to inculcate the remembrance of God in human minds and is a form of submission to the divine will, even the most particular part of each revelation serves this more universal end. Illustratively, the, the basic practices of Islam are not merely legally prescribed actions, but the means by which human beings return to their primordial nature the fitra, where they are ever cognizant of the covenant with God. In precisely this way, the observation of laws contained within a revelation reorient humans to their nature in God. As such, the rites of Islam, like those of Judaism and Christianity, serve to reintegrate and reorient human nature, such that the rhythm of life thus comes to be fashioned upon the norms that God has ordained, ordained for humanity. Thus, by following the divinely prescribed law given to a community within its revelation, humans ultimately submit their lives to the norms established by God for human life. I'll conclude briefly. 
In this way, by returning to the most foundational claims of the revelation, the particular and universal orientations of the Quran are not only reconciled, but also understood to work in concert, in concert to affect the human remembrance of God. It is this ultimate end that the Quran not only shares with other divine revelations, but also, perhaps more importantly, serves as a basis for the Quran's universal relevance for all of humanity. Since all humans fail to remember God to the degree they should, the Quran reminds whomsoever it may reach of this fundamental truth. La ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. The prevailing opinion among Muslims and scholars of Islam is that the Quran is a universal message for humankind, as I've said, and yet it contains numerous ayat suggesting otherwise. This paper's focus on the Quran's conception of its own universality and particularity suggests one way of understanding this dual orientation. By attending to the foundational claims of the Quranic message, the particular facets of the Quran can be understood as actually according closely with its more universalistic self-conception. In this way, the observation of laws contained in the revelation foster divine human relations, thereby inspiring remembrance of and submission to the one source and sovereign of human life, God. This understanding necessitates a methodological shift in Quranic reading, or rather the adoption of a distinct mode of processing the message, a mode perhaps more active when it is approached as a recitation. Hearing the message as a network of verses that impinge upon one another in intricate ways. More important than examining specific verses or even contextualizing verses within more broadly conceived holistic approaches to the chronic message, verses must be experienced as components of interrelated verse complexes. Only by appreciating the indivisibility of these complexes and the deep relationality among verses in close proximity are we able to better approximate or intuit the means by which various portions or orientations of the revelation relate to one another. Perhaps the importance of the inviolability of this intimacy among the verses lies in further recalling and reminding the forgetful human heart of its potential for intimate fellowship with the divine. A God who, as the Quran says, already knows what the soul whispers. A God who is already nearer to us than our jugular vein. And respecting this interconnectedness among the verses, speaking of the Quran as strictly a particular or universal revelation is no longer tenable. For the Quran's self-conception so often acknowledges and emphasizes both aspects in the same line or breath if it is being recited. We do well then to consider and speak less in the absolute language of universality and more in terms of the Quran's universal orientation. A few outstanding questions that further trouble the language of universality must be noted. A number of verses, as well as polemics that draw from the Quran but are largely extra-Quranic, argue for its greater relevance or supremacy within the revelatory lineage or tradition of which the Quran speaks and includes itself. Such verses and arguments demand further consideration to determine if the Quran's universal orientation is different or greater than other revelations of which it is aware. Likewise, the Quran is principally concerned with Judaism and Christianity when describing its universal orientation and relationship with other divine revelations. Similarly, the Quran contains verses suggesting that it is the final divine revelation. In this context, serious questions concerning the language of universality as the most appropriate framework must be addressed. What are we to make of teachings that certain communities of faith contend have been revealed since the Quran's revelation? And what of traditions that historically predate the Quranic revelation, but fall outside of the milieu of pre-Islamic Arabia? That is, traditions that are not 
within the domain of Christianity, Judaism, paganism, and other systems of belief that Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his followers encountered. Daniel Madigan and Abdulaziz Sachedina both offer viable solutions to this conundrum. Nevertheless, further exploration is needed to more definitively describe and understand the Quran's universal orientation with respect to prevailing notions of both universality and pluralism. Thank you. Thank you, Denson. Um, next, we will have uh, Siobhan Kelly read uh, from their paper. Siobhan Kelly is a second year MTS candidate in women, gender, sexuality, and religion. In the fall, they'll begin a PhD here at, in, at Harvard in religion, gender, and culture. Their work centers around critical theory and its intersection with trans studies in theories of gender, sex, and sexuality. Their paper is entitled, Savior Rhetoric in Transgender Celebrity. Siobhan Kelly. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here. Um, before I start, I want to especially take the time to thank Carlene for all of your work in putting on this event. Truly, it would not have been possible without you. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Nasrallah for your amazing introduction. Um, it was illuminating um, for me as the person who wrote a paper that you referenced in it. Um, <laughs> I'd also like to thank Dr. West, as I'm sure I will have similar thoughts when it becomes your turn to speak. Um, I had the pleasure of being in class with James uh, as a bit of his paper came to fruition and I had the pleasure of meeting both Debbie and Denson on this day two years ago um, at our own open house. Um, I was uncertain if I would have a place here for what I study. That uncertainty doesn't leave, but the connections stay. This paper deals with the utilization of messianic narratives in public speech by two trans celebrities. Lou Sullivan, a major FTM activist in the 1980s and 90s, recorded a series of documentary videos with his psychiatrist, which were then presented to the American Psychiatric Association. Jennifer Finney Boylan's memoir, She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders, remains one of the most widely read books by a trans person. I define key factors in messianism, then explore where such rhetoric appears in the two case studies to discuss the dangers associated with its usage. As both Christer and Britta Stindahl concern themselves with building ecumenical communities across religious difference specifically, and most notably across uh, the divide between Christianity and Judaism, this paper intends to expand conversations within the study of religion, showing the field of study as instrumental in the future of emergent critical discourses, including transgender theory. Some public transgender individuals in the move to achieve personal, professional, and community intelligibility describe their journey as fitting a messianic typology I hope to show how this religiously infect, inflected and infected rhetoric is deployed. 
I define messianism as requiring four facets. First, a messianic impulse relies upon an image of the self as resurrected, changed from a previous state through death or something analogous to death. Secondly, the Messiah brings about change. This logic relies upon describing oneself publicly as ushering in a new world order. Third, the Messiah works against existing systems in an, in an antagonistic relationship to the way things are. And lastly, messianic impulses require recognitions by others of their singular importance and power. Messianic logic opens up the possibility of new ways of being in the world and new ways of achieving legitimation, while simultaneously foreclosing creative embodied possibilities into only the form or forms heralded by the Messiah at hand. Legitimation may be achieved, but at a creative cost. As followers of such messianic figures, contemporary transgender communities and individuals have more widely available narrative presence in the world, but those narratives are still confining. Looking at the relationship between these public figures and discourses, their messianic impulses simultaneously open and close sites for gender exploration. Walter Benjamin's messianism structures the four aspects of this transmessianism that I use. Richard Wolin says, quote, there will be no smooth transition from historical to redeemed life. It is not a question of the organic transition from one realm to the next, but in the words of Benjamin himself, it is rather transcendence breaking in upon history. In transnarrativity, one transcends their physical body, social location, personal history, sex, and or gender in order to become a fully formed new self, the first of the four messianic characteristics. Secondly, according to Catherine Mills, part of a messiah's mission is the messianic overturning of the law. So the messiah comes to cor correct or overcome legal failures for Benjamin fascism. This solidifies the second and third categories. The messiah brings about a change by working against existing systems. To Benjamin, quote, only the messiah himself consummates all history in the sense that he alone redeems, completes, creates its rela relation to the messianic. This figure is prefigured in history, and only the Messiah will clarify the immeasurable ways that history has pointed towards this messianic moment, the fourth point of messianism, of one singular importance and its recognition by others. The recent text, Messianic Thought Outside Theology, argues, quote, when we speak of a messianic potential, we should be careful not to dwell on, only on its restorative or revolutionary power when the destructive dimension is part and parcel of it. Messianicity is both the most hopeful and the most nihilistic thought, calling for destruction and restitution alike. They go on to say politically, quote, messianic talk produces hope for restitution, while at the same time threatening long-standing institutions. But this impulse is, quote, an equivocal thing, so it's not universally positive. This aligns closely with John Caputo's reading of Derrida's Messianicity Without Messianism. He says, to quote Caputo, were the Messiah ever to show up in the flesh, were his coming ever taken to be an occurrence in historical time, something that could be picked up on a video camera, perhaps like tonight, this would be a disaster. The effect would be to shut down the very structure of time and history, to close off the structure of hope, desire, expectation, promise, in short, of the future. Progress ceases when the Messiah comes into being. 
As some thinkers like Lee Edelman point to a no-future, a non-messianic view of queer history, others attempt to recoup a queer glance towards the future on the horizon of the queer drive to both death and to the non-foreclosure of meaning. Benjamin's angel of history being blown backwards risks a look forward, an image central to Heather Love's feeling backward, lost in the politics of queer history, where Love asks, quote, what are we to do with this tattered, passive figure, so clearly unfit for the rigors of the protest march, not to mention the battlefield? Trying to maneuver a way out to hold on to both queer melancholy and a more positive possible future. In this genre and in public discourse, the category of trans becomes so over-signified that, that it marks the beginning and the end of everything, of queerness, identity, gender, sex, personhood, community, politics, the list goes on. In the public imagination and within the specifically queer public imagination, trans identity has come to represent that moment of horizon arrival, of the return. To turn to Lou Sullivan, he embodied the de facto F to M gay male experience in the 1980s and 90s. Sullivan became a trans messiah representing the first public manifestation of this form of gender difference thus containing all following and, naturally, all prior forms of difference within himself. After completing, his word, his medical and social transition to living as a gay man, Sullivan recorded a series of videos with major psychiatrist in trans healthcare at the time, Ira B. Pauly. These videos were then presented to the American Psychiatric Association, including one such presentation that Sullivan himself attended. Sullivan describes parts of his body pre-surgical intervention as, quote, female, highlighting the ways that he is, quote, transitioned. He says, and I quote again, I was a female from the waist down. Again, this is exposing this first aspect of messianism, of a changed and resurrected self. Secondly, Sullivan brings about change, reinforced both by Sullivan and by his doctor. Dr. Pauly says to Sullivan regarding being the first public gay FTM to speak, quote, you're defining a new syndrome, to which Sullivan responds by saying, quote, somebody's got to be the first one to open their big mouth and admit that this is what they're up to, and as long as no one else is talking about it, it's going to be forever silent. Sullivan also wrote and distributed a pamphlet, Information for the Female to Male Crossdresser and Transsexual, which was, according to trans scholar C. Jacob Hale, widely distributed among F2Ms, serving as a literal handbook. This marked Lou Sullivan of, as of singular importance to the movement. Sullivan's personal phone number was included in that book, making him accessible and known as a figure for whom one turned to help, turned to for help. Lou Sullivan in many ways defined and solidified F2M identity in the 1980s and specifically made a place for gay F2Ms to enter public and private legibility. He embodies the fourth element of Messianism by working against existing systems, which may at this point seem a little obvious. At the time that he was speaking, it was nearly universally required for a person seeking biomedical interventions to not only fully cohere their gender identity with the perceived change, but also that these changes render the person heterosexual. Sullivan openly and actively defied this. He says, quote, I had a lot of problems with gender professionals saying that there's no such thing as a female to gay male, and you can't live like this, and we've never heard of that. 
Sullivan worked against existing systems of knowledge and power to create space for varied experiences of sex, gender, and sexuality and their overlap. Turning to Jennifer Finney Boylan's She's Not There, Boylan relies upon the trans trope of being, quote, in the wrong body, living the wrong life. This narrative tool labels a previous male self as incorrect and incomplete, and the new, complete, resurrected Jennifer as more perfect and whole. A past male self dies to make room for the resurrected and correctly gendered self, the first aspect of transmessianism. Secondly, messianic figures bring about change. Boylan brings trans experience to Colby College, where she taught radar in the form of her coming out letter, which she publishes in full alongside a few chosen responses from colleagues, students, and strangers alike. Third, Boylan works against existing systems. She focuses on working against interpersonal systems and expectations, in contrast to Sullivan's more macro focus on combating social expectations. Boylan's relationship with author Richard Russo, who writes the afterword of this book, crystallizes this relationship of interpersonal expectations being overturned. Russo feels he is losing a friend, an important male friendship bond, and cannot understand how Boylan feels complete when she seemed so happy and fulfilled as a man. The rupture, the rupture in their friendship is slowly repaired through Boylan's patience, showing the tension between Boylan and existing discourses of power and how her transition worked against existing social mores, including those of her dear friends. Lastly, Boylan is recognized for her singular importance. This takes the form of those reprinted email responses to her coming out, as well as the tagline used in Boylan's promotional materials, most recently a speech here at Harvard uh, Radcliffe, that she's not there is, quote, the first American transgender bestseller. She's presented as a role model who brings about diversity and new forms of knowledge and understanding to the communities in which she participates. Boylan's memoir reinforces a linear, complete, and concrete narrative. It mirrors the type of story required in many places still today to access trans biomedical interventions. For example, Boylan espouses an understanding of the self as a transsexual before language, that is, a gender identity prior to the language of gender identity. She says in her coming out letter that, quote, I have had this condition for my entire life since before kindergarten, since before language. This is a requirement to gain access to biomedical interventions, something that her narrative may in some ways actually um, hone in on and make more likely to occur. Scholar of religion Jacob Hero discusses being denied biomedical interventions because of not experiencing enough bodily hatred and being attracted to men in his attempt to transition from male to female. Boylan sails through treatment to the point where she begins referring to her transition in past tense, something completed, finished, a piece of history. This consolidates notions of trans authenticity as tied up in trans historical identity labels. Lou Sullivan does the same, revealing himself to be a male homosexual even before identifying or having the language of transsexuality, and speaks of the importance of both bottom and top surgery in his own journey, again solidifying these medical requirements for access. However, Sullivan's public homosexuality provides a different narrative that proves necessary to granting access to those who desire biomedical interventions in their gender, so much so that even still treatment is denied. Sullivan's work and messianic impulse thus combats the notion of the true transsexual in a way that opens up greater conversation around sexuality while also foreclosing other conversations by centering his male identity on his bottom surgery as a requirement. 
The unfortunate reality is that the dissemination of these limited, acceptable narratives forecloses other approaches to embodiment. Sandy Stone says that when one's approach to embodiment, quote, achieves canonization, then that approach becomes a diagnostic category and subsequently, quote, homogenized to satisfy the constraints of the category. This renders some supposed members of the community outside of the realm of intelligibility. To quote again from Stone, the transsexuals for whom gender identity is something different from and perhaps irrelevant to physical genitalia are occulted by those for whom the power of the medical psychological establishments and their ability to, to act as gatekeepers for cultural norms is the final authority for what counts as a culturally intelligible body. Because they are not within these acceptable frameworks of trans identity, those not interested in changing their physical genitalia, regardless of other desires to access different biomedical procedures such as hormone treatment or even the desire to undergo uh, what is sometimes referred to in trans circles as a social transition, are pushed further to the margins. The study of religion gives a path forward to study rhetoric in trans popular cultural media as religiously inflected rhetoric including this messianic rhetoric, can work towards hegemony even outside of church walls. Trans celebrity relies upon familiar religious devices to create a singular narrative of how to be, even when religions and religiosity are not explicitly invoked. By way of a conclusion, I'd like to talk about a different form of writing that might provide a, a way out of this, of this bind. While messianic writing serves a purpose, especially when it comes to legal and social intelligibility that is unfortunately often tied to safety, explicitly non-messianic writing and ways of writing broadens discourse by refusing the solidity of these categories. The 2010 zine, Fucking Trans Women, by Mira Bellwether, focuses on a group that she calls non-op and pre-op trans women. In this work, she says, I'm talking about beginning with sensation not with names, vocabulary, or the things we think we know about our bodies. Here be dragons and sea monsters, my fellow genital cartographers, and we have a lot to learn from poking them. Let the metaphors, the language, the analogies come afterward. Best to begin from the beautiful, explosive moments of pleasure and discovery, and to let the rest come after. She says over and over again that this is your project and this is your zine, asking for submissions and pointing to places she does not cover, which she hopes others with greater expertise will fill in. In many ways, this type of writing relies upon co-creation, a term familiar to those scholars of liberation theology, to build community knowledge and sexual satisfaction. She writes an unwillingness to commit to more than sensate experience in the face of a societal push to fill a role and signify so many things simultaneously. Bellwether includes a section on the sexual act known colloquially as muffing, a practice she herself says many trans feminine people do not participate in, but she includes it without dictating acceptability, leaving room for one to make agentic choices for sexual pleasure. She does not create a singular narrative of trans feminine, sexual, and erotic pleasure, instead opting for multiplicity, purposeful gaps, and rough, rough edges. Perhaps then, the thing missing from a messianic impulse is the centra centrality of bodies and their pleasures. Would a focus on pleasure in its individualistic, jouissance-inducing, cacophonous moments undo the ropes tying non-normative bodies to narrowing narratives? Thank you.
two marvelous presentations. Thank you, Denson, and thank you, Siobhan. Um, we are halfway there, so hang in there. With us next, I have the pleasure of uh, presenting James Ramsey. James is a first-year MDiv candidate from Dallas, Texas. He graduated from Harvard College in 2015, majoring in sociology with a minor in music. After he graduated, he worked as a campus minister at Harvard, which he still does part-time in addition to his HDS studies. His current academic interests include theology, music, post-colonial studies and their intersections, and vocationally, he is looking towards putting the church, the academy, and, their and the streets, rather, in mutually edifying and equitable conversations with each other. James's hobbies include music, creating and consuming, pop culture, sports, superheroes, and next Netflix binging. And the title of his paper is Time, Sound, and the Margins, Theological Stick Figures of Kendrick and Coltrane. James Ramsey. Uh, first, I just want to thank um, Carleen specifically for uh, cornering me in American democracy and asking me to submit um, and the Stendhal committee for uh, considering me and all of my friends and scholars at HDS that uh, continue to push me make me more critical um, so I'm gonna in a, in a paper talking about time I'm gonna try to adhere to the time constraints that I was given. And I'm gonna read a kind of introduction abstract and a couple of excerpts from my paper. For a long time, our ways of being and thinking have been closely linked to hegemonic structures and dispositions. And they have restricted our understandings of our world, ourselves, and from a theocentric point of view of God. These strictures invariably perpetuate the kinds of hegemonic impulses that give rise to them, including those toward imperialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, ableism, and many other complex systemic and interpersonal matrices of domination, which all dehumanize all of us, marring our God images. Theology, especially Christian theology, is regrettably no stranger to these demonic strangleholds wrought by thoroughly human hands. God is often synonymous with various oppressions, and the discourse concerning God and religion more broadly often reflects this, constraints of particular voices, overwhelmingly white and male confessional Christians on one end, and white and male critical scholars on the other, and it shows in the epistemologies. One need only glance at any program's PhD requirements for theology to confirm this. By way of languages, only French and German are required, and any theologian who is not a European or American white man is seen usually as a niche scholar instead of being incorporated into larger so-called proper discourses on theology, marginalized perspectives are relegated to supplemental perspectives, um, known as liberation theology, womanist theology, African-American studies, etc. This tendency of theology to exclude can be read as little other than co-conspiracy and hegemony, 
and the shock waves from this reverberate throughout all the other disciplines, like natural sciences, philosophy, history, etc., in our broader ways of thinking about people in the world around us. In my paper, Time Sound in the Margins, I named from my particular Christian black male perspective, this exclusion of marginalized voices and discourse is a theological error. Johannes Fabian, in his book Time and the Other, locates this tendency in anthropological conceptions of time. He argues that over time and concurrent with expanding European imperialism, relations with the other, that is non-Europeans, were constructed by means of temporal devices with terminology such as primitive, savage, exotic, etc. This difference between Europeans and non-Europeans was affirmed, in his words, as distance, specifically uh, temporal distance. This distancing of the other subtly manifested in the so-called denial of coevalness, in his words, or the relegation of the other to a time and an abstract past simply because they are different from the holder of the perspective of the privilege. This paved the way for oppressive linear notions of progress whereby non-dominant epistemologies and cultures can be supplanted and replaced by so-called advanced features of hege uh, hegemony, particularly the specific forms and features of the white and the rich and the masculine. To use Willie Jennings' words, reconfigurations of bodies and space around whiteness. As stated before, this imperialism rears, rears its ugly head, even and especially in our contemporary moment, is intellectual imperialism which inevitably results in the domination of bodies, which is now allegedly disavowed, at least in the commonly liberal understanding of things. Black bodies and the miraculous intellectual and cultural innovations that spring from them are still othered, seen as savage or primitive or underdeveloped, farther back on the grand timeline of human evolution, needing to be incorporated into the forms acceptable in society as defined by white supremacy. Non-male bodies and meditations are seen as suboptimal or purely supplemental. The list goes on for everyone who does not measure up to acceptable benchmarks of whiteness, maleness, straightness, richness, ableness, etc., and in their various permutations. Therefore, this paper, progressing from this understanding of how those on the underside of society are thus infantilized and barred from being authoritative voices in discourse about who God is and who we as humans are, takes them seriously, treating them as theological adults and equitable conversation partners as opposed to supplemental or underdeveloped. By theologically reading two productions of the black musical idiom, rapper Kendrick Lamar's Untitled Five and saxophonist John Coltrane's Love Supreme, I seek to illumine not only how God talk from the margins is both valid and instrumental to a popular understanding of who God is, correcting the hegemonic uh, missteps of mainstream theology, this is Kendrick Lamar, but also how the forms of theological discourse themselves and the fact that they are un unquestioned also need to be the forms of theological discourse themselves and the fact that they are unquestioned also need to be destabilized. This is Coltrane, particularly in how I explore the possibilities of wordless music as itself profoundly theologically discursive. So, a couple excerpts here. Inspired by J. Cameron Carter's approach to slave narratives, I offer a theological reading of Kendrick Lamar's Untitled Five, uh, September 21st, 2014, from his 2016 album, Untitled, Unmastered, in order to glean from Kendrick a more nuanced theology of sin, disentangled from modern uh, race-gender constructs and their stereotypes, as he provides in Carter's words, a quote, better account, a better Christian account of new world black existence. Untitled Five, in contrast to other Kendrick Lamar songs like Faith and How Much a Dollar Cost, makes striking theological claims, but it's not as explicitly religious uh, in character or content as the other songs. 
But through style and narrative, Kendrick and the other featured artists on the track named theological truths about the complex relationship between interior morality and the immoral systems that can corrupt it within the black male body. These challenge the common isolations of agency as a concept from surrounding and embodied uh, social superstructures and the faulty bifurcation of personal sin and social sin in much of the discourse within American Christianity. As Carter implies in his work, it is no accident that the prevailing voices seeking to expose quote-unquote black-on-black crime and control quote-unquote black criminality through oppressive means are most often conservative Christian voices. This is an unsympathetic shortcoming of their theological discourse. In Untitled Five, Kendrick brings to light this problem in his and similar bodies as he holds together nihilism from systematic oppression, the wounded morality that flows from it, and the ironic inadequacy of mainstream Christian frames in addressing the plight of the downtrodden. This problem, the tension between faith and circumstance, between individual and societal culpability, is highlighted in nearly every part of the song, lyrics in general, sonic landscape alike. From the beginning, the pounding rock beat layered over palpitating bass lines and spastic saxophone improvisations evokes feelings of angst, heightened by the unsettling effect of tense, sparsely resolving chords underneath an eerie, suspenseful melody line in the chorus. And the chorus itself, first signed by singer Anna Wise and then by Kendrick, speaks of suicide, which establishes the pessimistic theme for the rest of the song and characterizes this ominous background music. From there, uh, three sections of lyrics further articulate and explain this pessimism. Kendrick, channeling in a semi-autobiographical sense the emotional and mental turmoil of systemic oppression, shouts, in contrast with the much more uh, measured delivery later on, a tale of a man beside himself with grief and hopelessness who turns to violence as a solution. He contextualizes the drunken hopelessness referenced by the chorus. And it is explicit, but I find it important to not censor black voices more than they're already censored. Um, he says, see, I'm living with anxiety, ducking the sobriety, fucking up the system, I ain't fucking with society. Justice ain't free, therefore justice ain't me, so I justify his name on obituary. Almost immediately, the resolution to self-destruct introduced by the chorus is linked with systemic failings, which leads him to plan, but in his conflicted state not carry out, nihilistic, miserable violence. He says, now I'm drinking by myself at the intersection parked, watch you, walk, watch you when you walk inside your house, you threw your briefcase all on the couch. I plan on creeping through your fucking door and blowing out every piece of your brain until your, until your son jumps in your arms. Then I cut on the engine and sped off in the rain. I'm gone. Through this sad tale, we see Kendrick associating violence, particularly in the psyche of black males, with injustice, which problematizes mythical notions of unmitigated agency often ascribed to people by conservative American Christian thought, um, a, per a perspective which is itself developed from privilege. Furthermore, for Kendrick, in the character of a self-destructing black male, uh, American, Christi American Christianity in its conventional mainstream sense is insufficient. The second line in the verse talks about this character putting his Bible, quote unquote, in the trunk, which is a metaphor for relegating faith to the back of his mind. And the lines just before the character meditates on the specifics of the crime say, why do you want to see a good man with a broken heart? Once upon a time, I used to go to church and talk to God. Now I'm thinking to myself, hollow tips is all I got referring to holotip bullets, of course. This personal violent sin is precipitate of the collective sins of the society that created conditions for the black underclass and has broken the hearts of black people. It is the result of a collision within black bodies between survival instincts and victimization. And the kind of faith this character is accustomed to cannot adequately address this. 
The final verse, Kendrick's and J-Rock's duet, focuses on the systemic oppression that has been in the backdrop of the song until now. It explicitly names these injustices, subliminal messages that wound self-image. They say, I fall behind my skeleton, they tell me that I'm blind, I know that I'm intelligence, my confidence just died. The racist profit-making engine propelling American society, particularly with segregations and concentrations of black poverty. They say, um, I'm passing lives on the daily, maybe I'm losing faith, Genesism and capitalism just made me hate. In mass incarceration, they say correctionals and these private prisons gave me a date, professional dream killers, reason why I'm awake. For them, black man's peace of mind, self-image, and hope in God and society are shattered by systemic injustices, leading them to consume everything around them to borrow one of Kendrick's depictions of nihilistic behavior. Thus, the imagined pseudo-theological dividing wall between societal sin and personal sin is shown to be abolished within the experience of the black body at the expense of the soundness of the black mind. But rather than uh, shift the culpability entirely to society, though, Kendrick and the featured rappers on the song seek to explain personal, highly destructive immorality in its proper context within the surrounding historical immorality that instigates such decisions. And they aim to disrupt, they aim to disrupt perceptions of black people, men in particular, as they are both men, as inherently sinful or violent because of some inexplicable predisposition for uh, crime and chaos. Additionally, by choosing to explicitly identify the church in all three verses about the intersections of societal and individual moral failings, they call mainstream Christianity its task, signaling a reclamation of the essence of biblical prophets like Isaiah, through whom God simultaneously condemns Israel's systemic oppression of its own underclass and issues commandments for righteousness, marrying holiness with injustice and immorality with injustice. Um, now, for Coltrane, um, a Love Supreme was an album, uh, for those who don't know, that was inspired by Coltrane's uh, issues with substance abuse. Um, and it's a chronicle of his divine encounter with God uh, while he quit um, heroin and uh, alcoholism cold turkey. Um, so that's the context for the album. In the paper. Jazz music, Coltrane's chosen medium, is profound for many reasons, not the least of which is its requirement of collaboration Spontaneous group creation is an important tradition in African-American culture, harking back to slavery, ring shout sessions, spirituals in the field, and black church worship, all acts of resistance through aesthetic and, and sonic group solidarity. Jazz as a black art form inherits this tradition, and it is foundational to the musical interactions between Coltrane on tenor saxophone, uh, McCoy Tyner on piano, James Jimmy Garrison on bass, and Elvin Jones on drums. Before a note is played, a love supreme makes a claim on the possibilities of God, of God talk. For Coltrane, it must take place not only in solemn, solitary reflection or literary forms, but also effervescently out of conversation with others. Coltrane, in his compositional genius, establishes the outlines for the conversations between him and the other members of the quartet. They all, in guidance and spontaneity, fill in the colors, giving new possibility and expression to his ideas, which are most likely incoherent and incomplete without their collaboration. The album is organized, as Coltrane uh, writes in his liner notes, according to four movements. The first is acknowledgment, the second is resolution, the third is pursuance, and it ends with song. The titles are important for understanding the flow of the music, which is also stated in his letter, is meant to correspond to the progression of his encounter with God. Essentially, Coltrane acknowledged God, resolved to devote himself to God, pursued God, and, and ostensibly after finding God, rested in peaceful praise and gratitude for his spared life. This is, uh, this is the understanding that establishes his work, and the titles themselves 
serve as useful markers for culture and spiritual journey upward, for substance, upward from substance abuse and racial and class terror, despite his relatively little verbalizing about it. Um, now I'm gonna skip to the third movement of the album. In spite of the self-propelling nature of pursuance, the third movement, Coltrane and Jones, the drummer, force it to higher planes during Coltrane's solo. His opening phrase is a wail, similar in mood to the melody in the second movement, and despite the blues progression that's intuitive, Coltrane instead improvises in more of a modal style, extrapolating on the tonal center of the piece, B-flat minor, instead of hitting each chord in the progression as would normally be done. The melodic style of the solo is primal, jig-like, not intuitively bluesy as expected in a minor blues piece in the jazz idiom, but rather very much in line with the notes of the basic scales, absent any bluesy or gospel alterations or embellishments. Progressively, something almost tangible comes over both Coltrane and Jones. A frantic yet controlled energy pushes them to new emotional heights. Jones's drumming is explosive, with jarring cymbal crashes in the middle of his swinging rhythms. Coltrane's playing is intense, high, fast, and at times straining, and a combination of both introspectively meditative and interactive with Jones. They feed on each other's energy and an energy coming from another place or perhaps another person at the same time. And even after Coltrane relaxes and returns to the song's melody and conclusion, Jones remains in rare form, evoking the drama-filled passion of African drum circles in his playing, lingering to a reluctant end as the piece ends with the meditative bass solo. As in the first movement, uh, pursuance is characterized by the drums. Here, the drama of the tune is established in the shouting and the controlled detonations within Jones' swinging. He, in collaboration with the blues progression established by Tyner and Garrison, firmly root the music in the African-American musical tradition with his rhythms that open, carry, and close the piece. He obviously swings, but he also undeniably borrows from West African drumming rhythms, made most evident in the piece's introduction and conclusion, and throughout the latter half of the piece in his accents during Coltrane's solo. His drumming can be read as theological commentary. Again, pursuing the divine for Coltrane is located in the languages of blackness, in the tongues of his African-derived heritages and experiences. Coltrane's pursuance of God, elaborated upon, elaborated upon by Jones, is fervent, energetic, and undeniably black in its variety of forms and cultures. It is fast-paced and brimming with energy, yet it is mysteriously composed. His devotion to God is a contained forest fire, inseparable from his black identity, always threatening to fall apart, but also always somehow under control. And he finds God, maybe by accident, as suggested by the piece, seeming to fall over itself into a surprise and drifting ending, each musician slowly dropping out, one at a time, as Garrison ends with melancholy reflection. This solo naturally leads into the fourth movement with no break, song. The third and fourth movements were recorded together and later split into two tracks. This song of praise is simple, heartfelt, and the underlying clarity present in the first three movements reach their fulfillment in the fourth and final movement. Each of the three prior movements feature an element of simplicity, though they are surrounded by complex musical worlds. They suggest a paradoxical combination of the singularity of God and the infinite expressions of and power behind it. In contrast, Psalm is almost totally subdued, featuring an intricate and solid wall of sound, but moving away from complex harmony, melody, uh, and rhythm. A song from the heart, it's ancient in expression, detached from musical complexity, even that of jazz itself, while being thick with emotion, inundated with reflection, gratitude, and love. Similar to the beginning of the first movement, the tune features a free time single chord tapestry woven by Jones, Tyner, and Garrison, where they all improvise freely over a given key center 
as Coltrane sits on top playing the free melody. The timpani and cymbals played by Jones and the sparse patterns played by Tyner and Garrison evoke feelings of a solemn yet contented and peaceful mood. Perhaps a simultaneous humble recognition of God's majesty and looking backward on the contours of a human life until that point. The improvised melody line played by Coltrane is basic and appropriately lyrical. And at the piece's conclusion, Coltrane records over and in conversation with himself, evoking feelings of a multi-voice congregation or a men corner in a black church and subtly pointing to the communal mantra demonstrated at the end of the first movement. And thus the album concludes, a theological expose that is inseparable from and meaningless without autobiography, with its depicted worlds of tension, stasis, peace, conflict, joy, and pain, culminating in a moment of surprising praise and worship, which propels both a performer and listener back into a cyclical lifetime journey of communion with God and neighbor, in which God inhabits and reveals God's self, even and especially in human spaces of trauma, miraculously redeeming them, providing quiet foundations of spiritual fortitude and resistance. In A Love Supreme, then we see an ex expression and testimony of divine human interaction, both with and without words. Through this, Coltrane aptly demonstrates the genius of black art, problematizing our categories, breaking some conventions, leaning into others, and firmly rooting oneself with all reverence to one's own story and the legacy of one's ancestors to communicate something truly inexpressible, meaningful, and somehow liberating in the present trauma-filled context while speaking truth, life, and light to generations to follow. Thank you, James. And next, we have Deborah Frempong. Deborah is a second year MTS student whose interests are mainly around the religious and political dimensions of West African literatures and film, with a particular focus on the formation of post-colonial identities. Prior to attending HDS, she was a student at Pomona College, where she earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Public Policy and Politics. A budding writer, her works have been published in the Killens Review of Arts and Letters and Clio, a journal of film and feminist thought. Deborah's paper is titled, Genres of Self, Locating the Human in Ayono's Houseboy and Sembene's Black Girl. Deborah Frempong. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna get right to it. In Wretched of the Earth, Franz Fanon writes that the condition of a native is a nervous condition. Speaking in frank terms about the social and psychological realities of those who live under colonial occupation, either physically or mentally. This quote finds a home among other terms such as cultural neurosis and double consciousness that seek to understand the lived experiences of the colonized. Drawing from this, I will be focusing on Ferdinand Oyono's Houseboy, a novel written in the form of a diary, and Usman Semben's film, Black Girl, in order to explore how the main characters, Tundi and Diana, understand themselves and their own subjectivities. In writing about the colonial subject, I hope to place us directly into engagement with these characters 
to not only see them as literary symbols of colonial, of colonial triumph and or suffering, but as humans who lived as we might. I also find that this engages Krista Stendhal's extensive work around male European Christian hegemony, echoing his own words, let the other define herself. Don't think you know the other without listening. Mm. Houseboy details the life of a young boy, Tundi, who leaves his father's home to live as a servant in the home of a white Catholic priest who teaches him how to read and write. In fact, this is how Tundi begins to keep a diary using an old notebook he finds in the priest's house. After the priest dies, Sundi works for the commandant of his town, where he witnesses and experiences a series of abuses against himself and fellow Africans. Eventually, Tundi flees and dies in exile in the Spanish Guinea. Likewise, Black Girl shares the life of a young Senegalese woman who is lured to France to work as a nanny for a family she worked for in Dakar. In France, Diana believes that she will live a life of freedom and become a cosmopolitan citizen one who is knowledgeable about the world in the way that she aspires to. Her hopes are dashed, however, when she realizes that she has actually been brought to France to be a maid. Diana is forced to cook and clean all day long, has no family, friends, and is never let out of the house. Exhausted by her alienation and disappointment, Diana takes back a carved mask she gave to her employers as a gift at the beginning of their working relationship. She then kills herself in the bathtub she cleans every day. In the end, when her boss returns to Dakar to return her things, Diana's little brother wears this mask and hauntingly follows him to his car. Despite the difference in geography and historical times, Houseboy takes place in Colino, Cameroon, and, Diane, and Black Girl takes place in France, soon after Senegal's independence. Both texts demonstrate the power of white colonial violence over black subjects in, in domestic positions. This refocuses the site of colonial violence from the public sphere of governance onto what happens to Africans who are let into white privacy. The African servant is indeed a well-known figure in much of colonial and anti-colonial literature. And from the titles Houseboy and Black Girl, for example, it is clear that in this world, African adults will always be subservient children. More importantly, servitude does not function as a marker of social position alone, but is embedded in colonial visions of Africanness. This is never more obvious than in the exploitation rendered by both the priests and Diana's employers, who under the pretext of a civilizing mission, set up the African servant to accept a dehumanization that masquerades as benevolence. Over time, both Tundi and Diana challenged these, in, these imbalanced historical relationships, refusing to grant the respect that is demanded of them. These transformations do not occur because the Africans begin to enter humanness, that is, they do not rely on abilities that signify European and to a degree universalized liberal understandings of civility, such as reading or writing. On the contrary, they happen because our main characters begin to see a lack in their moralizing masters. To evoke Fanon's ideas of the impossibility of a reconciliation between humanity and blackness as subject position, it becomes clear that in such white colonial worlds that depend on African capitulation, this requires death. The dilemma is, of course, that the African must die in both situations, either in surrender to white superiority or in challenge to it. It is in light of these claims that I'd like to explore what I understand to be the process of meaning-making in these lives that are lived on such unlivable terms. I would do this in two ways. One, by exploring the changing subjectivities of both Tundi and Diana throughout the text and film, and two, by placing the ever-present humanity of the dehumanized 
at the center of a typically di dichotomous colonized colonizer and or deprived wholesome conversation. In drawing lightly from the works of Catherine McKittrick and Sylvia Winter, I argue that understanding that an, that an understanding of colonized peoples as full beings with notions of selves that are ever-changing provides a more just and expansive way of thinking about the intricacies of their living. Weighing heavily on my analysis is the reality of the dearest and the which these peoples are placed, and the incentives they are given to deny themselves and others who look like them. I do not take this knowledge lightly, and as such produce my analysis with good in mind. Languaging the human. In beginning this section, it's important for me to emphasize that I particularly wish to trouble the category of the colonized, not to remove the reality of the disproportionate violence the main characters face at the hands of Europeans, but to take on the term set that it operates in a multi-dimensional way. This is lodging is important primarily because of how characters like Tundi and Diana have been written about. Simon Gikandi's analysis of, Ho of Houseboy, for example, describes Tundi's inexplicable attachment to the characters as responsible for his demise undermining the dynamism of Tundi's attachment and the irony Oyono infuses into the text by beginning the book with Tundi's death. Even Lillian Corti's deep analysis of colonial violence and trauma, which does well to demonstrate how the propensity to identify with the colonizer creates a compromised psychology of the colonized subject, primarily discusses Tunde as a subject of psychoanalysis and as an individual whose judgment is impaired by the effects of traumatic abuse. In several of these discussions, Tunde is cast as the naive native who does not know the extent of European violence until he faces it in more direct terms. While these analyses merit some truth, they sometimes work to obstruct what seems to me the more important project of humanizing that they are all to some extent concerned with. In all this, we see that even when the reasons for self-effacement are clear, the emphasis is placed on the main character's ability to overcome these psychological chains and to finally reclaim their humanity. This arc of interpretation, while critically important to understanding the trauma of colonialism, contains within it the possibility of either victim blaming or reducing the character to marked social categories that further play into their own alienation. I therefore seek to read these moments not entirely as naive or misplaced affections, but as understandable actions to the mode of living that are demonstratively required at the time. I also work to discursively trouble the idea of humanity as a destination in a journey of self-reflexiveness. Finally, in opting to think of the self as an unfinished closure to evoke Stotal, I hope to escape simplistic narratives about brainwashed or tricked natives. In what ways are the moments of self-denial a part of this tapestry of this kind of humanness, and not merely a testament to the brokenness of the colonized? What does a full life look like? And what, are its, and what are its possibilities under, this, under, under these particular types of constraints. Sylvia Winter's essay in Race, Discourse, and the Origin of the Americas by tracing the development of secularization and the forms of life that were understandable to the powers of Europe demonstrates how the history of humanism is told as a kind of European coming of age story. But as David Scott writes, this entry into a humanizing world that is focused on modernity also marks the beginning of Europe's colonial project. To quote him, humanism and colonialism inhabit the same cognitive political universe, and as much as Europe's discovery of itself is, simulta is simultaneous with its discovery of its others. What this does is to characterize a human that is essentially man in European, and is tied to epistemological histories that presently value a genre of human that reifies Western bourgeois tenets. 
Consequently, Winter's work for me lays an articulation of human that is not concerned with creating an ascendant figure that learns to cast aside their oppression in an effort to become human, but utilizes the categories of disenfranchisement as a way to navigate themselves in relation to the codes that govern humanness. Dispersing the logics of winter stipulations about what constitutes humanness throughout the lives of Tundi and Diana, I argue that the racial and colonial economies of living that they're made to experience and recreate do not prevent them from being human, even in the instances where they seemingly oblige to dehumanization. Rather, the relations between the social atmosphere of coloniality and the internal recreations of these structures within the colonized take precedence in allowing us to clearly map out the humanity of those who have to parse these territories. In their efforts to become worldly, cosmopolitan, and civilized, Tundi and Diana echo the demand that in order to be fully human, you must, and I quote, circumcise yourself of yourself. By excavating the, gene the genealogy of the category of human, Winter demonstrates that no kind of circumcision, either by the adoption of Western forms of being or of enlightened anti-colonial sensibility, truly permits the diselected to be human. Consequently, we cannot read Tunde's resistance to the social and internal pressures of colonial desirability as the moment he casts off an oppressed self and enters humanity. We must also read the moments of his submission and disenfranchisement as part of the realization of living and as part of what McKittrick means when she writes that to be human as praxis envisions the human verb as alterable, as relational, and necessarily dislodges the naturalization of deselection. Thus, if we take seriously the idea of being human as praxis, we realize that there are no singular moments that permit entry into humanity for the colonized. Everything they do becomes a part of this meaning-making process. Consequently, the colonized is not only human when and if they resist, they are also human even in their moments of self-denial. This process of verbalizing the human or of languaging existence is precisely what creates moments of dynamism for the characters in Houseboy and Black Girl. Thinking about this through the framework of a process is what permits us to truly understand the moments of continuous disruptions and relations between Tundi, Diana, and their colonial masters. For Tuni, this happens when he realizes that the commandant is uncircumcised, something which within his own worldview of what is considered human, and more specifically, adult male, is absurd. These moments, which tellingly do not happen in a, in a linear form, allow Tuni to center his own conceptions of human in what is really a radical shift from his earlier approaches, approaches to white behaviors. Although we see less direct responses from Diana, we recognize her growing apathy in France and her tiny rebellions against being treated like a house servant against her expectations. In this space where the human can be in motion like a verb, moving between different moments of time of past and present, it makes sense for our main characters to go back and forth between their own allegiances to their masters and to themselves. The role of language itself in this process of languaging existence is also important. Houseboy, which is originally published in French as Envie de Boy, translates into life of a boy. What kind of life we do not know and which type of boy we are unaware of. Similarly, Black Girl is first published as La Noire de, which means Black Girl of or Black Girl from, the inconclusion of her belonging made apparent in the absence of what or where exactly she is from or of. These narratives additionally move through different languages and forms 
embodying the voices of their characters in different ways. Although Houseboy is originally published in French, Tundi actually writes his diary in his native language, Owondo. The copy that I read is therefore a perceived translation from Owondo to French and then to English. Diana, who never actually speaks openly in France in the film, is only made to us, is only made known through us to, through her own thoughts. And while it is probable that she spoke another Senegalese language, we never know what that is. The lapses and continuations in these forms of communications, which we may never know, are indicative of the ways in which an understanding of the human, for those who live lives such as Tundis and Diana, may eclipse us if simplified. Subsequently, it is significant that their stories are always told from a disembodied perspective. Caught between these impossible lives, they still live somehow. In the end, it is not enough to be black French in either Africa or Europe. This is not to reduce the force of anti-African violence they face or to render it moot, but to demonstrate that the work of colonial brutality is to precisely disrupt the potential knowledge of oneself, whatever that may be, as Africans cannot return to something they don't know. As a wonder himself emotes, the river does not run back to its spring. This is not a refusal of the interpretation of a white colonial violence upon black bodies, but a refocus towards the idea that these bodies are full as they are empty. And this is the horror that these characters must recognize and live with. When Tunde asks, what are we black men who are French, he is not only asking a question about allegiances and the colonial violence placed upon indigenous African identities, he is also demonstrating the impossibility of a, of a livable life for those who are unable to make sense of how to exist in both ways. Tundi and Diana's deaths would take place as a result of the pressures and realities of colonial white supremacy. Do not happen solely because they realize that their previous notions of living were mindless or misguided, but that the life of death that is required of them expires and becomes impossible to maintain. The death they are required to keep on the inside, confidential, and on the psychological and spatial peripheries with their African families, friends, and in gossip hours, spills over to take place in the material world outside of them. It is not surprising then that what, that, that, that what is read as a coming into self is intimately related to death for both characters. And so here, death is not only emancipatory and or tragic, but perhaps the final integral stage of a journey for a self that is only allowed space in notebooks and masks. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. So now we will have um, Dr. Cornell West, our faculty responder. Dr. West is a, a prominent, provocative, a public and democratic public intellectual who returned to us here at Harvard this year as professor of practical philosophy. Dr. West uh, currently teaches American democracy with noted, noted political theorist and philosopher Roberto Unger at the law school, and another course entitled Du Bois, in which each week he both challenges and asks of his student this ultimate question of paideia. What kind of human being will we be? Dr. West. Thank you. Thank you. 
you very much. I wish we had about two more hours. You all have been patient. And I want again have us give it up for Denzel, Sobin, James, and Deborah. They have given us very rich, sophisticated, and subtle papers. I want to thank Sister Carlene for your leadership. And I want to thank Professor Laura Nasrallah for that magnificent, powerful, and poignant presentation as well. Very, very briefly, the context that I read these magnificent papers happened to be that 49 years ago, the death of Martin Luther King Jr., a towering prophetic figure that served as a kind of BCAD in the history of the American empire. And these particular papers for me are to be read as the voices of those particular peoples who in the last 50 years, in the half century, as this empire has experienced relative decline on the international states, undeniable cultural decay internally, and the political lethargy that we see in the White House and Congress with its relation to Wall Street is at this moment at the Harvard Divinity School, signs of hope because they represent precisely what this historical moment requires, which is integrity, honesty, and courage. And in fact, more than courage, fortitude. Because courage is, courage and magnanimity constitute fortitude. A Nazi soldier can be courageous and still a, a thug and a gangster, but courage with a spiritual and moral dimension is what is required. And here we are at Harvard, 49 years later, after the death of Brother Martin, in which there were 150 cities on fire, in which for the first time since the Civil War, the National Guard had to defend the White House because there were significant numbers of chocolate citizens who were threatening to burn it down. And we should never forget that. Never forget that. 49 years later, here we are in this space, reflecting on the world of difference, wrestling with resisting hegemony, and the voices of, in our Trump moment, Africans, black folk, Muslims, trans folk, we could add Jewish folk, we could add poor folk, we could add Arabs, we could add working class peoples, we can add women across the board, and the ways in which these particular peoples constitute scapegoats to help a particular ruling elite reproduce itself as the empire slowly but surely is unraveling. So then to zero in on the papers then. Ah, my first question, Denzel. <laughs> Wonderful paper, and it, it had the spirit very much of Christopher Stendhal. And I should say that I knew him very well. He was my dear brother. He was my teacher. Uh, he was a man of quiet dignity and unbelievable spiritual fortitude. But as the Lord noted, he had this sense of humility—not a moment of false modesty, of humility, hermeneutical humility, genuine intellectual humility, always listening to what we call these days the other but he would just call encountering those particular peoples who have been dishonored and devalued, Jews, women, for him, 
black folk. He was magnificent when I was just a freshman here 50 years ago almost, you see. So I'll never forget him. So, but the spirit manifests in your paper in terms of the quest for universality. My question for you is though, is the dialectic really the dialectic between particularity and universality or is it particularity and trans-particularity? And the difference is, is that there might be a group of people who are not embraced in your powerful paper. I think, for example, of my teacher, Richard Rorty, who never had a religion, never had a religious crisis because he had no religion to recover. And therefore, when you talk about forgetting God, there was no God he ever had to remember. John Stuart Mill had the same thing in the 19th century, Victorian England. He never had a religious crisis. He couldn't understand George Eliot because he never had a religion. He never believed in God, ever. Well, lo and behold, these days in our highly unchurched, unsynagogue, untempled culture, we've got a magnificent group of everyday people who had never even been exposed to God talk at all. I've taught in prisons now for 37 years. I see a lot of young folk. When I come into my Martin Luther King Jr. and Amos and Isaiah, they say, what are you talking about, Negro? We've been unchurched from the beginning. And we've been highly suspicious of those preachers who are CEOs rather than pastors, but we won't go into that right now. <laughs> That's cool. Question for that wonderful second paper. So, you got a line in there that hit me so hard when you said Messianism is the most hopeful and the most nihilistic. Ooh, I'd like you to unpack that. Restoration and destruction. And one of the ways in which cutting edge trans theory would not reproduce some of the worst of earlier messianic forms and build on the best of some of the earlier messianic forms. And the challenge these days is always that there's the, 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 the powers of the forces of commodification that would just recycle production, distribution, consumption of whatever kind of oppositional voice. It holds for black folk, it holds for women, it holds for, uh, for uh, you know, any other opposition, and it holds for our precious trans folk, too. <laughs> Some of the finest treatment of cold trans love supreme is in this paper. You all got to take the time to read all these papers, but that's a very difficult thing to do to write about. Ashley Khan, of course, you know, was one of the finest writers on code trains written. But just on the Love Supreme, and I'm telling you, you sit at the Ashley, even Brother Ashley got to sit down and learn some things from you. So I back to a student here. I didn't know you all an undergrad too, but good God, my student how to many school too, writing on code train in that way. <laughs> Because Coltrane is the last figure who fits well in professional managerial sites. That's a, he's about as talented as you can get. But I'm glad, my question is a line in, in another the lyrical genius from, um, from Compton, who's named after Eddie Kendrick, another genius from Birmingham, Alabama, false, say false self from Temptation, who's named after Eddie Kendrick. Keep it going on. There's a line where it says the 
cost of being successful is equal to being neglectful. I'd like to have you reflect on that line. Reflect on that line. In light of this rich tradition that you're keeping alive, which is the sonic tradition, which is an aspect of the black freedom tradition, which is the same tradition that produced Martin Luther King Jr. and all the, the Bakers and the Fannie Hamers and others who were presenting such a challenge to the American empire who constitute the leaven in the American democratic loaf. Hmm. With that leaven, is weakening. Black freedom struggle is feeble, thank God, for the movement for black lives that you all doing here in Cambridge and the other, but it's feeble. When the black freedom movement is feeble, the American democratic loaf is stale. And in part, that's where we are today, I would suggest. But I was reflecting on that, on, on that crucial, crucial line. I was going to ask about temporized spatiality and spatialized temporality, but we need a seminar on that. <laughs> so again, we don't have time for that. We'll hold off on that. We'll work with it. And last but in no way, least, this, 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 this wise last paper, it raises, I think, one of the most frightening questions of our day. It's the question that, that led, uh, in part, the great John Milton write Paradise Lost. After the revolution and the restoration of the revolution, how do you account for people's propensity towards slavishness or their deference to servility, S-E-R-V-I-L-I-T. And in both the film and the novel, the question is the ways in which oppressed people consent to their own domination. Given all of the forces and the humanity with which we want to stay in contact with, so they, they, don't have, they don't have to have a humanity to prove that they somehow are, 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 are fitting within some framework or trying to prove that they are human. But even once you accept black humanity, women's humanity, gay, lesbian, trans, and so forth, there's still waves of folk who continue to consent to their own domination. And that's one of the challenges, I think, of both of those works of art that you deal with. So let me just stop and open up my So yeah, we'll have uh, time for you all to respond to Dr. West's queries and um, response, and then we'll take a few minutes to engage uh, our attendees as well. So if you would like to respond in the order that he gave the questions. Do you want to go in that order? Or is it <laughs> Whoever is ready. <laughs> okay. Got that. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> 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 you know, well, I'll just say very, very briefly because I would like to get to a point to hear from those who are still like with us so many hours later. But I'll say that I think um, your question, Dr. West, points to my own ambivalence about the extent to which the language of universality is actually adequate to mm, mm. contend with and respond to a world that is defined by pluralism if we want to take pluralism seriously. And so I am at the limits of my own language in writing this paper and I think the next question and an open question that I have is what then after universality or after pluralism? Do we revise our notions of universality or do you, and, and notions of having a universal program for human life that can emerge from religious traditions, or do we revise our commitment to pluralism, or do something new altogether? 
Mm. And that's where I'm left uh, in my thinking at the end of the paper. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. West. Um, I think that there's an interesting connection uh, between what you rightly called the commodification of any and all oppositional voices uh, alongside the constitution of scapegoats. Um, and I think that I was you know, trying to point to the ways in which uh, public messianic discourse has the ability to both lead to greater intelligibility, greater legibility. I think the case of Lou Sullivan is really mm. key in understanding that, you know, the things that he was pushing for have not been accomplished nationwide across the world. You know, uh, in many places one still has to sort of adhere to heterosexuality um, if one desires right. biomedical interventions. And so I think there's a way in which um, messianic rhetoric can serve a purpose in in the move for legibility, but it cannot be the only thing mm -hmm. at work. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think that um, the way in which commodification plays into this is really important, right? Um, the ways that, uh, something I've kept seeing with the uh, Finney, Finney Boylan's um, The First. There's a lot of invocations of The First, especially around trans discourse, you know, um, Time Magazine called it, what, the transgender tipping point in 2014. Um, it was not the first transgender tipping point. It will not be the last. Um, and I think it's finding a way to sustain discourse across that. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, this one. Thank you for asking that question, too. I'm sad I couldn't uh, present on Punch's verse. That's, I mean, I love Punch's verse because as my mom said, like he kind of told on himself a little bit. Reflecting on it. Yeah, uh, so much of his verse is about, you know, how, you know, like part of it says, you know, what punches the other feature rapper on the song, sorry. Um, he says, studied the son of God, but still don't recognize my flaws. There's so much in that line when you hold it in conversation, the cost of being successful is neglectful. Um, I, think, I think this speaks to the reality of black life that is oppressed and that oppresses, um, and the inadequacy of Christianity as you know, we have inherited to, to address that fundamental flaw. I think it's powerful that a verse like that, the cost of being successful is equal to uh, being neglectful. I think, I think it hits at something that Punch references is how his monetary success led to his um, non-engagement with the underclass that he came from, but also, you know, in terms of telling on yourself. Now, uh, Kendrick is one of my top five favorite theologians for sure, but he is not immune to patriarchy. Um, it's rampant throughout his work. Um, and I think Punch saying that, the cost of being successful is equal to being neglectful, I think. I think maybe Kendrick, I mean, with all love, I say he suffers from a bit of uh, hubris. You know, he's kind of the champion for woke blackness these days. Um, but as many times as someone calls him on it, he will not address the patriarchy in the music. He just won't do it. It's, it's crazy to me. Um, so yeah, I really, I mean, I really appreciate your question because I think it squares nicely with the blind spots of traditional um, white American theological discourse that has consistent blind spots that it refuses to address. And I think that shows up in the way that you know, black life much you know, in the tradition of the, the prophets in the Bible will talk about Israel. Like Isaiah was talking to an Israel in exile, 
getting on them for oppression. Um, and I think there are parallels with black life where you know, they are oppressed, but they also have full human capacity to oppress others. Thank you for your question. Um, oppressed people sinking to their own domination. I think, I think for Africans especially, there's always going to be a way in which we're always going to be sinking to our own domination. Um, I mean, I speak English. You know, I can put on a fake American accent. Um, I can, you know, I, you know, I travel somewhere else and people think I'm American, they don't know where I'm from, my family's Christian. Um, that's successful, that's successful colonization. I speak English, I'm Christian, I go to Harvard. Um, and in those ways, it's always, we're always going to be dominated. Um, and then of course there are other ways, you know, where, I mean, the presidents, that are tearing up their countries. There are, you know, people that are working with multinational companies. Um, I mean, Ben Carson said Black Americans were immigrants. So there are all those examples. There, there. I think, you know, it's a whole kind of string of sinking to your own domination. Um, I think what's terrifying for me is the fact that. There are some people, that is the fact that like, even when you try not to sink to your own domination, you are always going to sink to your own domination. I mean, I don't think that I would be at Harvard if I didn't present in this way. I don't think I'd be at Harvard if I couldn't speak English. I don't think I'd be at Harvard if I wasn't of certain class. And so that realization is, for me, 100% the most terrifying thing about coming from a country that you know, only got independence about 60 years ago. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Now, do we, we are certainly at the end of our time. I didn't want to foreclose our time together without being true to offering an opportunity for a couple questions from the audience. Um, do we have any burning questions? that you'd like to ask our panelists? Okay. Well, I, I was going to say a word. No, because I'm since you leave the space. <laughs> I think one reason why I have such a smile on my face is because these papers do enact both remembrance and reverence that then produces resistance, but it's not a resistance in any kind of fetishized sense of ascribing some magical power. It's embodied and enacted in their thinking, in their work, and it has to flow from souls that are striving for integrity and honesty. And that's crucial. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson graduated from this place. He said every person, the calling, the striving for what degrees call out excellence. And the relation between that vocation and that striving will more than likely make you counter hegemonic. People might not call it that, that's fine. But anytime they hold on to integrity, 
in an age of mendacity and criminality. You may not call it resistant, but that's what it is. That's what it is. That's Jesus. Well, you count a hegemonic way? I don't know, but <laughs> trying to follow the will of God. Oh, okay. Fine. That's good enough. <laughs> Won't you join me again in thanking papers were read that these four were the ones who were chosen and with this award comes a monetary